The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. G'day everybody and welcome back after the Easter Anzac Day break. It's great to see you here. Hopefully a bit fresher after the holiday, but probably a bit depressed that you're back at work. We're, uh, this is the last talk in the series that we're doing with Ian Powell as the speaker, and it's on the interesting topic, Jesus versus Christianity. That seems like a strange contest. Be uh, curious to see what Ian has to say to us today. Just a few things. After Ian's talk, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions or to make comments. And you can do that three ways. The first way is by texting me, and the number will come up in a minute. Secondly, by filling out the slip of paper inside your program, writing it down and holding it up, and uh, Peter or one of the ushers will collect it and pass it on to me, or you can just stick up your hand. So if you have any question or comment, don't be shy, let us have it. And also at the end of the talk today, we'll be asking you to give us some feedback via this information card. It'd be great if everyone here could fill that out for us. Well, I'm going to read a few verses, part of the section of the Bible that Ian's going to be reading. It's from Jesus' life and teaching in Luke, and it's chapter 15. If you'd like to open up your programs... Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, Good afternoon. If I walked up to you after this talk and said, You're a true Pharisee. Or you're a real Pharisee. Have I complimented you? Would you be pleased be called a Pharisee, or would you think that was an insult, or would you go, what the heck was that about? Um, many people would find it an insult, um, but in the time of Jesus, to be called a Pharisee was praise, and it's very helpful to realize this. If you want to understand what's happening as Jesus interacts with people in his day, when you hear the words, as you heard at the beginning of that passage, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees, uh, if if you um, went to Sunday school or have been hanging around Christian things for a little while, you'll know that at the point you hear the name Pharisee, you're supposed to go, boo, hiss. If it was a, one of those sort of theatres, you'd chuck tomatoes or popcorn and the Pharisees would come on the stage and go, ah, 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 and they would sort of wax their moustaches. They're the villains. But we're not going to really enjoy the full weight of uh, what happens with Jesus unless we realise that in Jesus' time they were the goodies. They're the super goodies. Um, so if you're, a, you know, if you're, I mean, I go to an Anglican church at the moment, and uh, you know, for us, it's you know, the Pharisees were the guys who've gone to more college, um, they've left an expensive job so they can serve God. They know the Bible, they love the Bible, they they stand for the truth in a compromising, pathetically soft world. These are the good guys. Of course, if you don't like more college and you're not, a, find, find your own group of the good guys. But that's, these are the green, these are the best, the best of the best. These are the elite. 
These are the guys who really love God, are really serious about God. At one point, more than a thousand of them were put to death around the time of Jesus for their devotion to God. Um, they didn't serve God for money. They weren't paid. They, they were always men. Um, there's no point. Even then I go, men and women, but that's just nonsense. They're all men uh, in those days. And so when Jesus is trying to sort of challenge and thrill and wake up his disciples, he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And they go, wow. See, he's, he's chosen, he's not saying your righteousness must exceed that of the prostitutes and the tax collectors. That's easy. But he's picked the best of the best. You know, you've got to be fitter than the Olympians. You've got to be more powerful than the Wallabies or the All Blacks. It's that sort of thing. They're the good guys. When the Apostle Paul is giving a list of things that before he got to know Jesus, he would have bragged about. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. According to the law, I was a Pharisee. So it's important. These are the, these are the good guys. These are the guys who are really serious about God. And yet by the time you get to Mark chapter 2, and we're not looking at Mark's source, but just it's clear when you hear the word chapter 2, it's right at the beginning. By chapter 2, they are already fighting with Jesus. The Pharisees are deeply troubled by Jesus. By Matthew 23, just before Jesus' death, we have a whole chapter of Jesus going, Woe to you, you Pharisees, hypocrites. And he speaks about them being on the way to hell. So it's something very troubling about these guys. It's something quite chilling that in the end, these guys who really did want to honour God and protect God's honour and further God's cause, in the end, were instrumental in the murder of the Son of God. That they they were so close and yet so far. So there's there's a chilling and a tragic warning here for us. Now it's picked up by this guy Dostoyevsky. Now I've got to be honest with Dostoyevsky. He's a Russian writer, a long time dead, I have never successfully read any of his books. That is, I've never finished any of them. I've started quite a few. Um, they're great. And the one, this quote I'm going to give you is from the brothers Karamazov, I think it is. And uh, there's some great famous parts in it. There's a terrible description of human suffering uh, and how can there be a God when that happens. And the other character that's quite famous to it is this guy called the Grand Inquisitor. And there's a discussion between Ivan and his brother. His brother is a believer. Ivan is not. And here's, here's the picture that um, Dostoevsky puts up. Dostoevsky himself uh, seems to have been a genuinely devout Christian, became a Christian partway through his life, having been in prison, etc. Um, here's, the, here's the story. Um, Ivan tells the story he, he, that, that Jesus turned up in Spain in the 16th century. Now, they're Russian Orthodox, so the bad guys here are the Roman Catholics. Okay, not, not their own team, but, you know. Uh, and so he's a cardinal, so he's a prince of the church, He's the Grand Inquisitor. And he he sees Jesus and he arrests Jesus and tells Jesus he's going to have him executed in the morning. He doesn't in the end do that. But here's part of the conversation between the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus, this great leader of the church. Here's what he says. He says to Jesus, Didst thou not often say, I will make you free? And for 1,500 years we have been wrestling with your freedom. But now it is ended and for good. You desired men to love you freely. That, in you, that enticed and taken captive by you, they should live having only your image before them as their guide in place of the rigid ancient law. They were now weighed down by the fearful burden of free choice. I have joined the ranks of those who have corrected your work. It's a very... It's a, the whole dialogue goes on for pages between the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus. And every now and then, 
Alyosha, the, the brother who's a believer, interjects his brother's story, trying to make sense of it because it seems so absurd. And in the end, the, the cardinal decides not to kill Jesus. He lets him out a back door, sends him away and says, go and come no more. Come not at all. Never, never. It's a classic picture of Jesus being seen to be actually in conflict with and unwelcome in Christianity, in the church as an organisation. It really is the modern-day equivalent of the Pharisees, good guys, passionate guys, who in their own lights mean well and are willing to suffer for what they think is good and yet find themselves in opposition to Jesus. I regularly meet people who tell me how much they honour Jesus and yet you talk for five minutes and they clearly are opposed to everything Jesus said about himself and uh, what he came to do. Well, let's have a look at Jesus and his dangerous deed. And the dangerous deed, as you heard, is in verse 1, that he is, uh, or verse 2, he's eating, he's receiving, he's welcoming sinners. The word sinners is a powerful word in that culture. For us, it's a joke word. Oh, yes, I'm a terrible sinner. I ate too much chocolate. I'm such a sinner. That sort of nonsense. It's, it's got the weight that we would have for someone who sells drugs to children or perhaps even uh, a sexual predator. It, it's a word where, you know, it, it was wicked. And these are people who know what God has said or the children of Israel and they said, not interested. That's why they're often equated with the prostitute or the tax collector, people whose livelihood shows that they're not doing it God's way. And these good men, the Pharisees, are disturbed at Jesus' dangerous deed. He's breaking down a very important wall that had stood for generations. And that was good people, God's friends, God's people, do not welcome and treat as friends those who are not. They certainly don't eat with them. That's like taking them on holidays with you. You know, you, you don't take your mortal enemy on holidays. You may be working to help a person who's a pedophile, but you're unlikely to take him away on your family holiday. Eating with people is like taking them on your holiday. It's what you do with someone who's saying, I love you and I like your company. In that culture, you may have a meal with your boss who you don't like, or you may have a meal with someone who you're actually hoping to cut their throat in business, but in, in the Middle East, in that time, you only ate with friends. So the picture of heaven is eat, sitting at the banquet with God. Jesus is smashing that wall down. We know from the Pharisees' writings, comments like this, a quote from one of their writings, which is a comment by a great, scholar, a great Pharisee scholar on Deuteronomy 18. They say this, Let not a man associate with the wicked, even if... He is attempting to bring him to God's law. So it's very clear, isn't it? Don't, don't associate with the wicked, even if you're hoping to bring them to God's Don't do it. That's not how you do it. You don't mix the, the drinking supply with the sewerage. You keep them very much separate. You keep a strong wall between them. And that will actually help the sinner to realise that, that if God's children or people don't like them, they'll get a picture of how much God doesn't like them. Uh, elsewhere they say, don't even eat with those who are unlearned in the law. This is not the vile and the wicked, it's those maybe the people who dwell in the country who haven't had a chance to learn the details of the law. Don't, don't eat with them, lest you contract uncleanness. So it will damage you, it will damage them, don't do it. Keep the wall clear. Jesus smashed the wall down. Um, this is God's son, as it turns out, doing the exact opposite of what every Pharisee knew he knew the reasons why, but he knew it deep, more deeply than that. For generations they have lived by this. They would not eat with the wicked. Jesus strolls in and shakes the foundations and tears down the wall and eats with them. And they go, why? And this is the third time this has happened. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 5 and chapter 7, they, 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 can't, they see Jesus and they're, they're perplexed and they're upset and they, they don't know what to make of this man who seems to be concerned about God like them and yet 
is breaking down the wall. So Jesus responds with three stories. We've only typed out one of them, otherwise it would have been, the type would have been far too small. Three stories. Um, the shepherd who loses one of his sheep, one of his hundred. The woman who loses one of her ten coins. The father who loses one or perhaps two of his sons, depending on how you look at it. And it's, it's got this great theme going through it. And Jesus tells these stories to defend his actions, to explain his actions. Secondly, he tells these stories to reveal the real heart of God that the Pharisees are seeking for but missing. And thirdly, he tells his stories, I think, almost most importantly as medicine for the Pharisees. These men who are very keen for God and yet totally alien to God. Uh, and it's... Uh, so we're going to look at uh, these, uh, well, mainly at the third story. In, in all three stories, you have a, a key character who sort of stands for God and therefore perhaps for God's son, Jesus. There's something precious that's lost. They show a, an overly enthusiastic, almost fanatical concern to find the lost thing. When they find it, they rejoice. And in the earlier two stories, they have this theme that gets picked up and is echoed in the third story. They say this, having found the sheep, he rejoices. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I found the sheep that was lost. When the woman finds the coin after much searching, when she'd found it, she calls together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that was lost. You hear the repetition? It's, it's not just a private thing of joy. This is a moment of public joy and celebration that um, the lost and precious thing has been found. Then we come to the last and the third story, which um, uh, Dickens... Charles Dickens says, is the finest short story ever written. Now, I don't know what sort of an expert he is on short stories. seems to me his books are far too long. But um, I haven't even tried to read a Charles Dickens book. But uh, I, I, I like short books with large print. But um, it's a beautiful story. It's a magnificent story. And it takes you to the very heart and soul of Christianity. I think it's the second best part of the Bible, really, uh, Luke 15. And uh, let, me, let me read it. There's a father and he has two lost sons. He said to them, the first one's like the tax collectors, okay? Just, just a, we don't, we don't have you know, all day to spend. The first one's like the tax collector, the second son's like the Pharisees. Let me read you, it's beautiful. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. And the father divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took his journey into a far country, got as far away as possible. There he squandered his property in loose living. When he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out into his field to feed the swine. This is a Jewish community. He's feeding pigs. It doesn't get any worse than that. Well, it does in the end. Verse 16, he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate. No one gave him anything. The pigs are getting a better diet than he is. And he's on, the, he's on the verge of starvation. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have got bread enough to spare? But I am perishing here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But treat me as one of your hired servants. He just wants his dad to employ him. He knows he can never go back to the family home. Uh, if this boy's behaviour is bad in our culture, it is unspeakably insulting and shameful to the family. This would have broken the father's heart. It's damaged the family's uh, wealth because the farmer's divided early and he just sells it off and spends the money. And it has enormously damaged the father's credibility in the village to have a son who behaves like that. 
So he hopes perhaps possibly he'll get a job as a servant on the farm. Verse 20, so he arose and came to his father. This is a picture of the the tax collector and the prostitute and the sinner, the out-and-out wicked person who cares nothing for God, just wants his stuff and pleasure but does not want God. That's the heart of evil. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. While he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cut him off. He didn't even let him finish his little speech. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and make merry. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Like in the other three stories, that which was lost and precious is now found. It was once dead, it's now alive. So the dad throws not just a private party for him and his son, but for everybody. He's given the son the the coat, the ring, the shoes, all the marks that he's a son. He's got his room back, he's back in the family like that. Much more than the son could have hoped for. Absurd generosity on the part of the father. Unheard of. Almost immoral. There are some people who think this is a dangerous story because it says that there seems to be no consequences when this man repents. But really the the weight of the story falls on the last part because this is medicine for the Pharisees. Jesus is trying to get these good religious men, nowadays perhaps churchmen or whatever, and saving them from their own goodness and uprightness. Now, verse 25, his eldest son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called on one of the servants and asked him what this meant. The servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him safe and sound. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Lo, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. This guy's a Pharisee. He has for many years served God, the father, And he's never disobeyed a single command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your living with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, My son, you are always with me, and all all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this brother, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In all three stories, the the precious thing is found, a party is thrown. Only in this story, someone refuses to go in. Someone knows that the father is behaving badly. The father has lost his moral compass and he's being welcoming and throwing a feast for this evil little selfish guy who only comes home because his choice is death or home. This older brother is the Pharisee. He sees the heart of God... And it's completely foreign to him. See, you would have thought the oldest son would know that there was nothing more the father longed for than his son to come home. But on the day of the father's greatest joy, this son is angry because he's being too kind, too generous. He's welcoming and eating with the vile, selfish little sinner. He won't go in. He will not join the festivities as the friends and neighbours did of the shepherd and the woman with the coin. And we see here, fourthly here, that God's... The dangerous heart of God, it causes chaos to law and order and things like this in the short term. 
God seems to have no decorum, no self-respect. He runs out and kisses the scumbag son as he comes home. He comes out to plead with the self-righteous correcting son. This doesn't happen with uh, ancient uh, Middle Eastern patriarchs with sons, but he does that because he has no pride in that petty way. And what he says to the son is, look, he says, son, I'm not playing good boys, bad boys here. You know, I'm not marking the books. I remember when I taught it, sure... There was a particular sort of kid, and they were kind of nice, but they were kind of distinctive, who wanted you to mark the books, was disappointed if you didn't mark the books. There were many other, in fact, most of the class were delighted when you didn't mark the books till next week. But this kid, he, he wants God to mark his book. Mark my book, it's flipping terrific. I expect to get a prize, a sticker, something. And people, that's how they think God works. He's going to mark the books. And, and in, in Islam, there's a, there's, a quite, there's a picture of the two angels who are writing your good deeds and your bad deeds, and they hand the books in. It's not quite your book, but it's the record of your deeds. And, and God, Allah, will, will assess them and throw in some mercy, whatever. God's not interested in that. That's how the Pharisee works. It's how religions of all kinds works. It's a reward for performance. It's just not the way that Jesus says he or the Father will act. He's not marking the books. He's not interested in your performance. He's interested in people. He's not interested in rule-keeping. He's interested in real relationships. It's about what the Bible calls grace, which is where you love the unlovely. Grace is a sort of love where you love your enemy. You love the person who instinctively you perhaps shouldn't. And he's inviting the Pharisee, the older son, to to get to know him and realise, you think I'm like that? You think I'm like the quality control guy at the end of the factory line? And that your younger brother should be given the flick and chucked back in the reject you know, basket. No, no, no. It's not, it's not what he's like. This is why this is, so, this is a very disturbing view of God. And the parables of Jesus, and this one in particular, acts like a bomb that Jesus puts at the heart and root of so much of the human nature of religion. And every now and then it goes off and someone, it goes off in a person's mind or heart and they see it goes off. And what happens? What, what's destroyed? Jean Vier's God from Les Miserables. The God of law and order, crime and punishment, destroyed. And as the dust clears, you can just catch a glimpse of the God of unspeakable grace and mercy and kindness who loves and seeks after the vile and the selfish people like me. And even for those who are full of pride, who will dare to tell God how to run his universe, that's what Jesus is doing. And you know what the church often acts as various times? Acts like the bomb disposal unit, diffusing the bomb that Jesus has left there, being like the Grand Inquisitor, having to fix up the problem Jesus left with all this mercy and grace and kindness, which is the only way to change a person from the inside. But just imagine before we go to the conclusion, imagine if the older brother had been working in the front field. The dad was in the house or doing something else, you know, and the, the, the younger son comes home. He meets the older brother, right? the good guy. The Pharisee meets the tax collector. And the older brother will go and get the gun off the tractor and say, what are you doing here? I mean, you're kidding, aren't you? To come back now when you're obviously smelly and starving? Keep going. There's no way my dad wants to see you. And it would have been a very sad business if the older brother had seen him. And the the younger son would have agreed with him because he would have known he's been a jerk. He says that. And he would have assumed, I mean, if anyone knows what the father's like, surely the older brother, who's worked with him day and night, 
would. And often what happens for people is that they've got an interest in God and they meet a modern-day Pharisee and they feel condemned and they feel attacked and they think that if they go to church, they're just going to feel guilty and worse. Uh, And if you've ever met the older brother, don't let him put you off the father. They're, They're common enough and they need to be ignored and healed. And this is the sort of passage that Jesus gives to heal. So there are two older brothers. There's the older brother who's the self-righteous jerk, the Pharisee, who needs to get to know God, knows nothing of God really. And the danger is you can grow into him. You may have been an utterly selfish younger brother, but you just hang around God long enough and try. There's just something about seeking to honour God in a world that forgets him where you can just slowly turn into the Pharisee, the older brother. Or what God wants you to do is to turn into your real older brother. When he adopts you into the family, you've got an older brother called Jesus. And remarkably, it says he's not ashamed to call you his brother. Although if I was him, I'd be ashamed to call me brother. But he's not. And you hang around him and you will become like him. A lover, a giver, a gracious woman, a gracious man. One who learns to love their enemies and to do good to those who don't deserve it. There are two sorts of gods. The God of the Pharisee, who's not actually there, but is very common in people's minds. And the God of Luke 15, the God of grace. How does it change us, lastly? Well, there's a man who's spoken here quite often. And uh, he was chatting uh, a couple of years ago with a a man from the Islamic faith. And they spent quite a bit of time talking. The man was a deeply thoughtful guy. You may have heard this story. And in the end, the guy's slowly getting that it's about grace. It's not about Pharisees and earning your place by doing the appropriate things and getting enough good points. But it's about what Jesus does in dying for you and what God Jesus gives you. And the guy said, but if that's the case, if it's all a gift because of what Jesus has done, why would you obey God? Why would you keep his commandments? And uh, Al was explaining to him just as as, as well as he could. He said, you know, it's just a response to the love. When when you see how much God loves you, you you don't want to use God. You don't love answers love in him once you see it. And apparently the guy's eyes moistened up and he said, of course. Of course that's how it should be. Of course you don't obey God to score points from God, that's just another form of selfishness. But you obey God just out of thankfulness. That's what changes the heart and the behaviour. Well, let's see if we've got some time for questions there. What do you think, Craig? No, no, definitely not. Let's go back to work. Yes, of course we do. We've got time for questions and comments. So I'll just give you a minute to have a think about any questions you have about Ian's talk. What do you think the relevance is for us? Uh, You could sit there and just have a think to yourself. You could write your question or comment on the little slip of paper inside your program. You You could have a chat to the person next to you and see what they think. So I'll just give you 30 seconds or so to have a think about any questions or comments you'd like to ask or you can text it to my number up here. You know, I'd like to ask a question from the floor, as they say. I can answer that question. I do have a text question, just to keep yeah, us off. Good. 
Not quite sure how your sermon relates to our ordinary notion of freedom. Please explain. Yes, there there are quite different definitions of freedom and some people think freedom means freedom to do whatever I want, no sense of constraint. Uh, That's one possible definition of freedom. I think the freedom that the Bible speaks about is freedom to be all that you're made to be. So a fish is free when it's in the water, a bird is free when it's flying. If a fish, or if most fish try to fly, they will just die. If a fish gets sick of being in the water, it will just die. The question is, what are you made for? And what you're made for in the end, you find your freedom, you find yourself when you're caught up in a relationship with the God who loves you and when you're actually becoming like Christ. It's that sort of freedom. So it's, uh, it's the freedom you have if you love someone. Uh, I, I don't find it hard to be kind to my mother. Right? I don't find it hard to be kind to my wife. I just, this stuff, I just, I like being with her. I like, if I had more money, I'd buy more stuff. Um, but I don't have it. Um, so she gets nothing. But, so it's not, it, it's, that's what love does. That's what, it's the freedom that comes from love that actually does what if you didn't love the person might look like a real pain. Um, so it's that sort of, it's the freedom that comes from being in a loving relationship and being all that you're made to be. So. Okay, another text. The Pharisees dedicated themselves to living a good life. Mm. Isn't that what God wants for us? No. Next question. Okay. Um, no. No, that, that's what, that's... That's why our government can so stupidly, or a couple of governments ago, not a great deal of difference, can, can replace special religious education with ethics classes. Yeah, they're exactly parallel, of course, right? Because that's all religion does. It teaches you to be good. I can be good without being God. In fact, I'm better than most people. Get it. No, you're not, but that's okay. It's all this chatter about being good, and then people say, you guys just talking about being good. We don't. We talk about a relationship with God that will transform you. But it's about your relationship with God. That's what it's about. And if you ignore God, you are like the youngest son and you are an evil person. No one is good who ignores the most important relationships in their life. You, you may win the award as the most honest accountant in your department, but if, you don't, if you've got children and you don't bother to feed them, you're not a good man, even though you might be employee of the year. You might win all sorts of awards on the planet, but if you're not treating God properly, you're as evil as they come. Um, so, but it's not about good in the normal sense. It's about relating, being in the right web of relationships that starts with your primary relationship, which is with your creator and your judge. So, sorry, I'll calm down now. Okay, thank you. Any other questions out here? Just stick up your hand and I'll bring the mic over to you. I want to pray sometime. You know. Everyone's avoiding eye contact. <laughs> Um, that's okay. How about if I tell one last true story and then pray? Okay. We don't normally pray here, at least not out loud. Um, but every now and then we like to offer people a chance to pray. Look, th- there's a story that's attributed to um, Abraham Lincoln, but it's not, it's not true of him. But I remember reading a, a serious uh, text on the slave trade and there was an ex- a thing like this happened. We just don't know who it was that did the buying. And the story simply goes like this. There was, there was one of those terrible things where human beings were being sold. 
and uh, a young woman gets put up on the stand and she's about to be sold and the man who's off seeking to buy her is known to be a sexual abuser and has a history and, and the Africans, uh, African-Americans knew who he was and he's trying to buy her and he finds this guy who doesn't know bidding against him. And in the end, the story often is Abraham Lincoln, but it wasn't. Um, and in the end, the guy is outbid. And the lecherous sexual abuser sort of, you know, you'll have fun with her, mate, and uh, he just ignores him. Takes the girl away and then says to her, you're free, I'm releasing you. I'll take you back to the north where you'll be, you won't be a slave. She said, what, what do you mean? He says, I've bought you so I can set you free. And they have this discussion. What does, that, does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, you can go wherever you want to go. Does that mean I can be with whoever I want to be? Well, yes, if they're happy to be with you. Yeah, and they have this dialogue. And in the end, she says, well, then I will go with you. I want to be with you. And see, what has he done? He's bought her for freedom, but the very act has won her, in a sense, to lifelong devotion. And this is, this is what God does. Right? He buys us through the, the blood of Jesus. And that actually sets us free. And we say, there's no one I'd rather be with than the one who's died for me and the one who's loved the unlovely like that. So I can, And that's what it is to be Christian. And that's what transforms the heart and so the life. So I'm going to suggest we pray. It's just a prayer that's going to ask God to help me to get, to understand grace, to get it, and to embrace grace and to learn to live it. It's a prayer to become a Christian, or if you're already a Christian, just a statement of, this is how I want to keep living. So I'll pray the prayer slowly enough for you to echo it to God in your own heart, you can change the words. So we normally say close our eyes when we pray, you don't have to, but it's just a way to not be distracted. You can have a bit of a sleep if you don't want to pray. So I'm going to just we perhaps close our eyes and we'll pray. Our great maker and father, please help my mind to understand your grace. your love for the unlovely, your gift of instant forgiveness. And please work in my heart that I might really get your grace. Please empower me to embrace your love, to accept and receive your love for me. And please teach me to live a whole new way of life. Rejoicing in your love and learning to love and forgive others. Thank you for hearing me. Amen. Hi, my name's Mark, and I'm just going to take us through a couple of announcements now. And the first one is, uh, if everyone could grab the sheet of paper, which is titled Information Card, and if you can write your name, there are some pens on the table, uh, and fill out your details. If you've given us your details uh, before, that's okay, you can fill that out again. And particularly, uh, there are two boxes at the bottom of the Information Card. Uh, If you'd like to find out more information about the Bible, we've come to the end of this series called Questioning Faith, looking at different religions and Christianity and Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about that and the Bible, please tick that box. And also, if you uh, prayed along with Ian, that prayer he just uh, 
uh, uh, led us through, if you can tick that box. And when you finish uh, completing that, just fold it in half for your own privacy and put it in the middle and uh, the ushers will pick that up. So I'll give you a few moments to do that. Grab a pen. And because you can multitask, I'll take us through some of the other announcements as well. And the uh, first of three announcements is this one, which is on the screen. Uh, it's an event next Thursday night called The Bucket List. Uh, it's for young workers. Uh, please don't come because of the speaker, because it's me. Uh, so stay away. But if you'd like to find out more about what Jesus has to say about life, uh, what we look forward to, uh, and what we hope to achieve in life, kind of uh, continuing on this discussion which we've had today, uh, please come Thursday night. It's at the Occidental Hotel, um, and you can register on our website. Uh, the next announcement is uh, we have something on Wednesday nights, uh, starting on May 14, uh, so two Wednesdays from now. Uh, there will be a short course for the curious. Uh, perhaps this series over the last four weeks has raised questions about what is faith, who do you trust in, uh, in life, and who is Jesus. Uh, this is a course for f uh, five weeks. Al Stewart, one of the other speakers, will be running this. And there's no uh, prior knowledge required. You just come uh, and we take you through this course that explains what Christianity is about. Also, there's a dinner, free dinner at 6 o'clock. So it goes from 6 to 7 dinner and 7 to 8 is the short course. If you'd like to um, join us for that, you can uh, fill that also in on the information card as well and leave that on the table. And finally, our next series is The Australian Dream. What do we hope for? And next week we kick off with a guest speaker whose name is Simon Piller. Uh, he's uh, the person who founded um, Pacific Equity Partners and the information is on your cards. So please take one for yourself. Uh, the topic is The Australian Dream. Is it all about money? Uh, Simon uh, is quite good at making money, so it would be good to hear from an expert about uh, what money brings, but also maybe some of the pitfalls and some of the traps of making money. So we'll be looking at that. Then the following three weeks, Al Stewart will be taking us through that. But that's the uh, end of the forum, so I hope you have a good rest of the day at work. Uh, if you want to hang around and chat, feel free to do that. But otherwise, see you next week, Thursday, 1.10. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.